chapter 5 uh, of Matthew, verse 1. Uh, and no surprise there, right? We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the beginning. We read the whole thing last week, uh, and I'm going to um, do, I'm, we're going to pause uh, throughout this and talk about uh, kind of um, what, what's happening and maybe unpack it a little bit as kind of a, a teaching commentary on it. Uh, you, you're going to laugh because we'll get to verse 1, uh, and then I'll probably spend half of, half, half of this, uh, um, this lesson on verse 1. But uh, chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Where's the Sermon on the Mount happen? It's on a mount, <laughs> right? It's on a mountainside uh, that we don't know where. Um, there's a, a place in the Holy Land that is, is like traditionally, it's, it's called the, that, that's the mountain of the Beatitudes. The, the, it's the place where the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to have been delivered, but nobody really knows. Um, the description is generic. Um, and so we have this, um, we have this description of, uh, Jesus standing on a mountain or standing on the side of a mountain and delivering uh, this address. Um, I, if we were to go back into the Old Testament uh, or even forward into the, the future of the New Testament, I could show you many, 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 many places where important things happen on mountains. In fact, most of the important events of the Old Testament, uh, most of the theologically significant events of the Old Testament happen on a mountain. Uh, and that's the, the reason for that is that in the, the, uh, the conception of, of ancient people, including the people in the ancient Near East where the Jews lived, mountain, mountains were, were, were where God lived or where gods lived, right? And why is that? Well, often they were inaccessible, right? You can't just go get your North Face gear um, and, and climb up to the side, of, you know, climb up the side of the mountain. So the, the ancient Near Eastern vision of what, uh, where, uh, where the divine, where, where heaven met earth, was a mountaintop that had a garden on it. So it's significant for that reason that Jesus is, is standing on a mountain when he's delivering this address. I want to show you something else, though, um, that I think is Matthew is doing here. Matthew is a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and I told you last week that one of his purposes here is to um, to connect the New Testament with the Old. Um, there's a reason Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's literally, it's literally where the New Testament meets the Old. It's, it's Matthew connecting Jesus to all these Old Testament prophets, prophets and prophecies. His, his entire purpose uh, is to, uh, to show that the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, so I want to show you something. Uh, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Uh, and most of you or all of you will know, uh, somebody's calling me from Colorado, but I'm not going to answer. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. This is, and remember what Deuteronomy is, is uh, Moses... Uh, on the plain, uh, you know, on the plains of Jericho, he 
sits down and he addresses the children of Israel and he reminds them of who they are. This is a generation that wandered in the wilderness. Uh, the, every, like the, genera- the first generation that got to the Holy Land in numbers and didn't want to cross, they're all dead. Um, these are the young people who know nothing but uh, wilderness, who know almost nothing but wilderness wandering. And he's, he's sitting with them and he's telling them, this is who you are. Uh, and some of that is announcing the law. Some of that is announcing what happened to them in Egypt. Some of them is uh, casting a vision for what's going to happen once they cross the river. Um, and he says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have have well spoken that which they have spoken. Uh, So there's this event in Horeb where they're like, We don't. Uh, God, you're awesome, but we would rather not like see you face to face or experience your fire because but please send us a mediator. Allow Moses to be a mediator for us. And the Lord, uns- and verse 17, and the Lord said unto me, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I, all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he, he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Uh, in other words, they'll answer to me if they don't, if they don't respond to him. Um, so we have Moses, right, promising uh, a teacher, or a, a prophet like me will arrive. A prophet like me will come. That's how, that, that's in the future. Um, and so if you're a, a, a second temple Jew, living in the Holy Land during this time, one of the questions in your head is, where's the Messiah, right? And another question that's in your head is, where's the prophet like Moses? Where's he at? Well, if we were to step back to Matthew 1, you would see an enormous genealogy that uh, Matthew constructs showing that Jesus is, uh, and I forget whether Matthew is, shows descent from, through Mary or Joseph, but all the way back to the line of David, right? What, what's the point there? What, what's Matthew's point? He's a king, right? He has a rightful claim to be king. What he's doing here, I'm going to suggest to you uh, in, in Matthew 2, 3, 4, and this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, Jesus is connected to Moses. He fulfills what Moses said back in Deuteronomy. Uh, so let's go really quickly to Exodus 1, 15 through 22. I think that's what I had, right, Richard? And, and this point is subtle a little bit, but um, I think it's, it's definitely there, and it's, it, it's Matthew... Um, artfully casting Jesus in the role of Moses. So Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Yep. Sorry, folks. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives. All, we all know this story, right? Um, Pharaoh is getting anxious because there are so many Hebrews 
uh, and he seeks to uh, he seeks to impose his will on them uh, in, in this uh, by uh, basically making their working conditions worse. Uh, and then in, in 15, uh, he hatches another uh, plan and he says, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then, shall she, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty, and it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all the people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So go to Exodus 2, 1 through 4. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the, son con- and the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. Let's go to Matthew 2, 1 through 14. Um, and maybe my point is so obvious to you that you're, you're like, John, get on with it. But I think it's important. Uh, so this is the, the birth story of Jesus as it's told in Matthew. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they were come into the house... They saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Um, so is it, is it a coincidence that these two stories begin uh, with, uh, with the tale of a, a child who's being sought by an evil king to smother him up? 
No, it's, it's not, right? Ma- Matthew's making a point, right? He's, he's connecting, right, Jesus to Moses in this, uh, this very subtle way in, in their kind of origin stories, right? There's this, um, this idea um, that, that the two of them were born under similar circumstances, pursued by similar evil men. So let's turn uh, finally to Exodus 32.15, and then we'll return to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I, I would read the whole, uh, there are like three chapters of Moses going up and down the mountain. Uh, like he goes up and he comes down and he goes up and he comes down. Uh, some people go up with him, he comes down. Another group comes up with him and he goes down. But I want you to notice something here in Exodus thirty-two fifteen, uh, And this is right before the, um, this is the, the, I think, second to last time he comes down, but I could be wrong. In any event, notice what he's doing here. It says, And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. What, what are those two tablets? They're, they're the, the, that's right. They're the ten words, the ten commandments. They're the law. Right? Mo- so Moses was up on the mountain and he's coming back down with the law that he received from God. Uh, oh, I guess I'm reading more than I said, but that's okay. Uh, and when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Uh, and this, you know, he sees them dancing and, and partying and worshiping the golden calf uh, and he gets angry and he throws down the, tablet, the, the tablets. Um, I do not think it is a coincidence, right, that Moses went up on a mountain and came down with the law, and Jesus is going to tell us about a new law, or about the transformation of the law that Moses brought down from the mountain while he's standing on a mountain. What's Matthew's point? Matthew's point is, this is a new Moses, right? And if, if it's hard to express or explain uh, if you were a Second Temple Jew, um, just how much you would revere Moses, like how almost to the point that I mean, it's it's not worship, but you would you would really venerate and and think that Moses was like 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 a super Israelite, like like the best you could get would would be to be like Moses in, in their uh, in their view. Because you think about the mindset of a of a second of a second sorry a second temple Jew, right? Yes, David was Messiah for sure, um, and uh, he established the line that one day would deliver them. They think, but the monarchy has failed, right? They got taken into everybody got taken into exile. David's David's descendants were not nice people. Um, and so you, you've got maybe this jaded view of the kingship as an office, but it, Moses remains, right? Moses is unchanged. Um, and, and you would think, man, if only I could be like Moses. That, that would be a thought you would have as a Second Temple Jew. 
Um, if, in fact, if we go to Hebrews, which we won't, but if we were to go to the book of Hebrews, which is written to Hebrew Christ, or Jewish Christians, uh, it, one of the, in the continuous theme of that book is Jesus is better, right? And it starts out and it says, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the tabernacle. Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than, you know, all of these different things. Jesus is better than the king, one of the things it says is Jesus is better than Moses. And the argument that the author of Hebrews makes to talk about that, he says, well, a cert- he doesn't say Moses is a bad person. He doesn't uh, impugn Moses' character. He says a, a son is better than a servant. Right? That's the argument. So understand, it, you would have an appreciation for Moses sitting in this crowd that's hard for me to even explain. I, I, you know, imagine if we had somebody in our culture that everybody looked up to and nobody thought, uh, nobody thought that they were bad or had done anything bad. Like uh, just universal respect and appreciation. Uh, you know, I maybe like I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or like somebody like that that people agree, universally agree was a great man. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. And, and so Matthew, in connecting Jesus up with Moses, is saying two things. One, Mo- Jesus is this prophet who is like Moses. He's, he's fulfilling that prophecy. He never states it directly, but that's what he's implying. Uh, and second, um, re- remember what happens after Moses delivers the law, right? He, he leads them to the promised land. He doesn't enter it himself, but he leads them there. And if Jesus is better than Moses, he can, get, he can lead a spiritual exodus out of sin and, and shame and evil, right? He, he's coming to complete a spiritual exodus. Um, so anyway, uh, now we can move on past verse one uh, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, I, I, think, I just think that's so neat that uh, the, the longer and... The longer you read Matthew and the more, the more times you go over it, the more you understand that uh, it is an, an intricately constructed work. It's not, uh, all the Bible is great literature, but the, this is a, a, is a master work of uh, construction. Uh, and like Matthew knew the Old Testament, like the back of his hand. He's able to imply fulfillment of things uh, like in the background that you're not even thinking of as a reader. Um, so let's go to, back to Matthew 5. Um, and just to say a little bit about, um, to do some setup for next week, and I don't think this is in my outline, uh, unfortunately, Richard, so I'll just go ahead and say it. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, so we're going to talk this week and maybe next week about the, what are called the Beatitudes. Uh, we'll start talking about them today and probably not finish them up. Uh, and then next week we'll talk about what are called the Antithesis. There are six of them. Uh, and I don't want to use big fancy words too much, but uh, the, Beatitude, the, the Beatitudes are called the Beatitudes because... Uh, the Latin word, remember I talked about makarios last week? Uh, so I gave you four Greek words you should know. One of them was makarios. The translation of makarios into Latin is beatus. And that's where we get the, uh, the word beatitudes from, is like the Catholic Church translated into Latin. And, the, you know, 
Uh, so we're going to talk about those. There are eight or nine of those, depending on how you think of them, and I'll talk about that in a moment. After that, there are six, uh, six antithesis. Uh, and an antithesis is when Jesus says, you've heard it said X, but I say Y, right? And he, he never contradicts X. He just says X is not sufficient. You've heard it said by them of old time, uh, thou shalt not kill. But I say, even to get angry with your brother without a cause it is the same thing, right? And, and he, then he goes on, he, that gets him going and he goes on and on and on. So um, uh, we'll talk about that. And then uh, there are, there's a section with uh, what I'm going to call woes. Uh, and those are pronouncements of judgment on different kinds of people. Uh, And then there's some other matter at the back that we'll get to, but that's sort of the structure of the sermon uh, in a a large way. The other thing I want to talk about that's not on my outline, sorry, Richard, (laughs) is how Matthew is structured. Um, And I I just tell you this for like informational purposes, but I also think it's important because it tells us a lot about why the sermon is positioned where it's at. Um, So the way that Matthew is constructed uh, as a book is... uh, Action happens, and then there's a speech. And then action happens, and there's a speech. And then action happens, and there's a speech. The Sermon on the Mount is the first speech. Um, so there's like this, this narrative that's going on about what Jesus is doing. And I actually want to read to you 423, because it's kind of the, the like mission statement for what Jesus is doing. Uh, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. That verse is repeated uh, at least uh, one other time and then there are variants of it throughout Matthew. So what's Jesus's mission? Well, he came to, to tell people about the kingdom. Uh, he, um, sorry, He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and then he came to demonstrate the life of the kingdom by healing people. That's that's what he came to do. And so there are a bunch of illustrations of exactly how he's doing that throughout uh, each of these kind of, uh, I think there are six narrative chunks and then five speeches between each one. And it's very deliberate. Um, This, so you can think of this first speech, right? This is this is Matthew portraying the Sermon on the Mount as kind of Jesus's opening sales pitch, right? Or his, his first proclamation uh, or description of the kingdom of heaven, right? So he gets there and uh, he says, this is what it's about, guys, right? This is the, the very first discourse, a discourse or speech by Jesus. So what's he say? Verse two. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So a few things. Um, to focus on here. One is to focus on the structure of the Beatitudes. I just talked about the structure of Matthew. Um, the Beatitudes themselves, there's some debate uh, over whether there are eight of them or nine of them. Um, if there are eight, right, that last one sa- is when Jesus turns around. He's talking about, in general, about people, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be, right? He's describing a class of people in general. And then he turns to the audience and he says, blessed are you, blessed are you. So there's some, some debate as to whether that ninth one belongs with the rest or is a separate category. But whether you think there are eight or nine, there's definite grouping. Um, just like the 10 commandments, like the first five commandments are about your relationship with God and the second five commandments are about your relationship with community. The same is true uh, of, of these. So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, all of those things uh, from the perspective of commentators who've talked about this are about your relationship to it's vertical, your relationship to God. Um, and then your relationship to others, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? It's about your standing in the community or your, uh, your connection with others. I don't know if I completely buy that, that division. Um, I think maybe a better way to look at it is that the first three are grouped together, the second three are grouped together, and the third three are grouped together. But, and there's also, I'm sorry, a third way of looking at it is that they're progressive, Right? Uh, you start as uh, poor in spirit. And that's, that's like the first step, is realizing that you are poor in spirit. Um, and then progressively, right, you, you, you gain the attributes that are talked about uh, in the Beatitudes. Um, so we'll, we'll return to that in a moment. But uh, uh, the other question that maybe should be first on here is, who's this addressed to? Uh, and that's a question that we could ask of the whole sermon. Um, a few different ideas. Uh, if we were to read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the antithesis, right? The, the Beatitudes we can kind of unpack and understand. You know, I'm, I'm sad a lot, right? I, I mourn all the time. You know, I, I could probably do that, right? Um, but when you get to the antithesis and it says, don't even be angry. Your righteousness, it says, has to exceed the righteousness uh, of, of, the, the, of the Pharisees, right? It has to be better than them. Well, if, if it's addressed to non-believers, right, to, to people who are not yet disciples, you know, how, how would they receive that? They would probably receive that as, oh, well, I, that, that's an impossible burden to meet, right? And of course, Jesus's point is, yeah, it's impossible to meet. 
you, you need someone to stand in your place. You need to have, you need to take on the righteousness of someone else. I, I've got you covered is, is kind of the message. Um, so uh, three people or three classes of people it could be addressed to. One, uh, just anybody out in the world, right? Um, like people who aren't yet believers. Maybe addressed to decide, or another thought is it could be addressed to people who are already believers, but it's about developing, right? Uh, it's an, uh, about develop. Remember I showed, I, you may not remember, I showed you the, I, I think there are two axes. One is, are you saved or not saved? That's this way, not saved, saved. The other is, are you virtuous or not virtuous? We worry a lot about this one, but not so much about this one. And the question of whether it's addressed to disciples or to everybody is really about whether it's about this or about this, right? If it's, if it's to everybody, then it's a set of entrance requirements, right? You got to do these things or you're not in the kingdom. If it's about virtue or if it's to disciples, it says you're in, but become more virtuous, become more Christ-like. Um, and then the, the, the third, which I'll mention just because it's interesting. So Augustine and many other young, are young, no, many other church fathers when the, when the church was very young, they wrestled with the Sermon on the Mount because it seems impossible to meet. And their idea was, well, this is for like spiritual athletes, like, like the LeBron Jameses of the spiritual world. So like monks or priests or like, like people who are, are super holy and want to dedicate themselves entirely uh, to the study of the word and living out a life that is in God's favor. Um, and, and only if you do that does the sermon apply to you. That's kind of a dodge, isn't it? Because, I mean, he, Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, this is for my special followers, right? He says, he just turns to the crowd and says, and lets it blast, right? Um, also, uh, I, I, that's really a, I mean, so I took a class about the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the big struggles throughout church history has been uh, reading this sermon and understanding that Jesus meant every word, and then saying, well, how did he, how did he mean it? How can I do this? How can I live out the kind of righteous life that's described here? So let's return to the Beatitudes. Um, so I focus on the four in each Beatitude. Uh, we have an unusual or a weird relationship in English with the word for um, that's in each of these Beatitudes. And I would urge you to read it as because, which is, it can mean that. The word for is flexible. But it becomes easier if you read it with that in mind. So... Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth, and so forth. Makes it a little bit easier to understand, and the reason for that, one, four is somewhat ambiguous. Um, it can mean because. Um, it's easy to read these beatitudes uh, and think... Um, so should I try to become poor in spirit? That, that doesn't seem right. And also, as the opening pitch of Jesus' ministry, 
I mean, if you were in the crowd, you'd probably be like, uh, dude, I don't know. You're like, uh, um, I have to be poor in spirit to enter. I don't, I don't know if I like that. Uh, blessed are they that mourn. That's not so fun, right? Like, eh. um, I might say thanks, but no thanks uh, to a kingdom that is filled with mourning, tired, sad, uh, poor, hungry people, right? And it also helps if you read um, Blessed Are as congratulations to. We talked about that last week, right? It becomes almost funny. Congratulations to the poor because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing, um, I'm, I'm going to suggest in these Beatitudes, is he's turning the expectations of the crowd on, on their head, right? What you would expect of people who are going to enter the kingdom of God is that they would be rich in spiritual life, right? The rich in spirit are the ones who would be closest to God. Luke just says, uh, blessed are the poor. He doesn't say poor in spirit. But, um, and you would expect, uh, you would not expect people who are mourning, right, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or to, uh, you, you wouldn't expect the, the citizens of heaven to be meek, you would expect it to be a triumphant kingdom, right? The expectations are that the strong prevail and the weak are trodden underfoot, right? That's, that's the way of the kingdoms of the earth since the beginning, from the beginning of time to the present day, is that the strong prevail. And what Jesus is saying is, my kingdom's not like that. My kingdom's not like that. My, my kingdom is a place where my kingdom is a place where the mourning are comforted, where uh, it's not the rich in spirit that enter, because the rich in spirit think that their own righteousness is what enables them to enter. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who know they are unworthy. It's those who feel far from God that are able to benefit right, from what Christ has to offer. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm sorry. Um, I'm out of time. I'm <laughs> so I'm going to stop. Actually, uh, okay, let's go to principle five, if you would. Focus on the beginning. And I'm, I, don't, I don't care if I'm running out of time. I'm going to go ahead and just go for a minute here. Um, focus on the beginning of the, and the end, right? So go to verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're told one other group uh, is, uh, possesses the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the, the world doesn't vow, right? Each statement is blessed are X because Y, right? And the things on this side of the equation, none of them are things that the world values, right? And then the things on this side, Maybe, right? Because you'll get the kingdom of heaven, because you'll be comforted, because you'll be filled, um, because you, you, you hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Um, but that, that framing device of saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to the, 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 um, the poor in spirit and to those that are persecuted, it's a progression. He's, what he's saying is if you do, if you follow me, right? You're, you're going to feel the things that are on this side of the ledger. 
And also, people are straight up going to hate you. You will be persecuted, or people will be persecuted because they are are subjects of the kingdom of heaven. Um, And then he says, blessed are you. he, He makes the identification and says, men are going to revile you and hate you for my name's sake. But that's what they did to the prophets, too. So, uh, I focus on the invitation into kingdom life. And we'll talk about this a lot more next week as we wrap up the the Beatitudes. But um, I can't read my own handwriting. (laughs) Hang on. Okay. Um, So... I want you to think of the Beatitudes not as a, um, a set of commands, like be this way. I want you to think of them uh, as an invita- a wisdom invitation, and we're going to compare them to the, some of the Psalms next week. Uh, it's, it's a wisdom invitation for you to lead the good life. And the good life is not what you expect. Persisting in Jesus' love will allow you even though you're mourning, to be comforted. It'll allow you, even though you thirst and hunger for righteousness, to receive it. It will allow you, even though you are merciful in a world that does not value mercy, to meet mercy in, in the kingdom that's to come. Right? That, that's the point. And it's an invitation for you to, to meditate on those principles and then live according to them. Uh, it's... Um, So the the Greek philosophers had this phrase, eudaimonia, the good life. The whole point of Greek virtue philosophy was to live the good life. And what Jesus is saying is, the good life isn't what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. 